They did it. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Well, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hands, and uh, one of the brothers will bring you a Bible to use this morning. Uh, keep your hand up there. I'm going to break up that conversation back there at the back. Is that brother holding Bibles? Somebody got Bibles? Yeah, come on with the Bibles. You can talk to Charnay later. Come on with the Bible. People, hand up, hands all tied, waiting on the man with the Bible. All right, so keep them up. And uh, if you need a Bible, uh, you don't own a Bible, let that be our gift to you. Brandon, right here. Let that be our gift to you. Uh, go ahead, write your name in it, take it home, uh, read it at night, read it in the morning, pray through what you read, come to church with questions. Um, we would love for you to be mastered by the Bible just as we want to be mastered by the Bible as well. So everybody have a Bible that, that wished one? All right, well, let me offer a word of prayer and we'll get into God's word this morning. Holy Spirit, quiet our hearts this morning, clear our minds, focus us on the truth. Father, your word is truth. Sanctify us by it this morning. Make us holy through your word. And Lord Jesus, you are the word made flesh. So we pray that as we come here to your written word, we might, we might get a glimpse of you, the incarnate, resurrected, ascended, glorified word. Draw us to yourself through these few lines we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are visiting with us this morning or you're new to Anacostia River Church, uh, you have landed in the middle of a sermon series that we have called Serious Joy, the message of Philippians. Uh, we're working our way through this book, basically one section at a time, trying to get a sense of the, the message of this book, the, the main burden of this part of God's Word. And, and we have sort of captured that burden in that phrase, Serious Joy. Uh, we see on, this pa on the pages of this letter, written by a missionary named Paul, who's in prison, and who doesn't know whether he's going to get out of prison or whether he's going to live? We see throughout this letter this repeated emphasis and this repeated demonstration of joy. How is it that you can be in prison, possibly on death row, and be full of joy? Well, the burden of this letter is this, that, that we can have joy in all circumstances if, in fact, our joy is in things not determined by circumstances. We can have joy in all circumstances if, in fact, our joy is not determined by the circumstances themselves. Paul has three passions. Jesus, the gospel, and the kingdom of God. And he connects his emotional life to those three passions, those three things that, that determine and animate who he is at his core. So that whether or not he's in prison, Jesus is still Lord. The gospel is still spreading and the kingdom is still coming. And because of that, Paul rejoices despite imprisonment and the threat of death. This is serious joy. We've been in chapters 2 and 3 over the last couple of weeks, and that's really the, the heart of the letter, the, the meat of the letter. And the flow of the letter goes something like this across those two chapters. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Paul says there, basically, have the mind of Christ. Think like Jesus, particularly in his incarnation and his humility, in his crucifixion and eventually resurrection. That the Christian ought to have a mind that's, that's shaped by the gospel. Secondly, obey the Lord without grumbling. You see that in chapter 2, verse 12, verse 14. If we think like Jesus, we ought to obey Jesus. And obey, obeying Jesus is not a burden, it should be a joy. Then Paul comes down a little bit later, chapter 3, verse 1, and, and he puts what he said in chapter 2, verse 14, in its positive form. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling and questioning, 
And he flips it. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Gives us that command that we're to seek our happiness in Christ himself, in the Lord and the things of the Lord. And in order to do that, he explains in chapter 3, beginning in verse 8 and following, that if we're going to do that, if we're going to rejoice in the Lord without distraction, if Christ is going to be our highest happiness, then the things of this life we have to count as loss. We've got to count it as rubbish. We've got to consider all that this life has to offer as nothing compared to knowing Jesus. And Paul says he counts his life that way, and he presses toward the prize of Christ himself. Verse 14 and 16 of chapter 3. Which brings us down to our text. How do we do that? How do we have the mind of Christ, obey without complaining, rejoice in the Lord, count things as lost? How do we learn to sort of live that way as a pattern of life? Well, this paragraph helps us to Think about that. There are three word pictures in our text this morning. There's a picture of walking, a picture of thinking, and a picture of standing. Walk, think, stand. We must learn to walk, think, and stand in a certain way if we want to live the way Paul lives and the way the Bible calls us to live. So our line this morning takes those pictures. Number one, walk like an apostle. Walk like an apostle, verses 17 and 18. Number two, if you're taking notes, think like a citizen of heaven. Think like a citizen of heaven, verses 19 to 21. And then number three, stand together like the family of God. Stand together like the family of God. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That's the first thing that we have to learn to do if we're going to live with the kind of passions and joy that we see with the Apostle Paul in this letter. We got to learn to walk. And specifically, we have to learn to walk like an apostle. You see that there in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in Christ. You see there that word, imitate me, copy me, be like me. We hear the cliche sometimes that imitation is the highest form of flattery. Or maybe you're from that early hip-hop generation that used to talk about biting stuff. Don't be biting my style. Don't be biting my lyrics. Don't be copying me, right? To walk like an apostle, we need to imitate the apostles. We need to bite. We need to copy. Not as a flattery to the apostles. Paul ain't here to get your flattery. But as if it is necessary to the Christian life. And we need to do this in a conspiracy. Notice how he says there, join in imitating me. This is something the whole church is doing together. They're in a pact. They're in a conspiracy together to live and to walk like the apostle Paul. They are to create a partnership where there is help and encouragement in order to live this way. But as I said, this is not about flattery to Paul. It's about living like a Christian. 
And for us to live like Christians, we need examples. And that's a major part of Paul's ministry and Paul's ministry strategy. He doesn't merely teach with words. He, he teaches with his life also. So let your eyes go down to Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Notice what Paul says there. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Or think of that text, many of you will know, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul says there, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or he tells a young pastor, Timothy, when Timothy was in Ephesus and he had an older, richer congregation that was sometimes opposed to his leadership, Paul tells him how to counter all of that in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. He says, let no one despise you because of your youth, but... Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Pastoral ministry involves not just words, but walk. Not just teaching, but also example, so that people might be able to imitate the apostles, imitate Paul. So the question might become, well, how do you imitate Paul if you ain't never met Paul? We don't know Paul, man. Paul been dead over 2,000 years, man. How, how does one have access to his example, have access to his model in order to copy it? And the answer would be, you follow the example of others who follow the example of Paul. That's why Paul says in verse 17, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul's in prison in Rome. They're way over in Ephesus. Paul's not accessible to them physically, but he has sent Timothy and Epaphroditus to them, chapter 2, around verse 19, and they are to model for the church the way Paul lives. And for us today, following Paul or following the apostles would mean following the Bible where we have Paul's life and thoughts and examples written down for us. And it would mean today following faithful pastors who follow the Bible. So Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The Christian life is a relay race. One sort of teaching and life pass from beginning to the next runner, to the next runner, until the end. It's passed from Jesus to the apostles, from the apostles to the Bible, from the Bible to pastors, and from pastors to people. That's why it's not a game of telephone. You guys know that game? You whisper some message in somebody's ear and they're supposed to repeat the message, you know, along this sort of chain of people. And by the time you get to the other end of the, of the sort of chain, it's, it's a whole completely different message. That is not Christianity. And it's not Christianity because we are not following the word of men, but the word of God written for us. So if there's ever a break in the link of the chain, all you need to do is come back to the book, come back to the Bible. And we find ourselves following the apostles, copying their manner of life. And this takes practice. It's interesting that we have to learn how to walk, don't we? Human beings are not like most mammals. Most mammals, when they're born, walk within hours or a day. You think of the baby um, horse, what's that, a foal or a colt or whatever, is born, and almost immediately they, they stand up and begin to walk. It's an amazing thing to see. Even a baby elephant walks within about 24 hours. But the human being, well, that's going to be months later, isn't it? Around month nine, around month 10, and even then it's going to be with a lot of coaching, isn't it? A lot of hand-holding and guiding and toddling along with them and a lot of encouragement, do it again, do it again. We need models for walking. Even runway models need models for walking. It's funny what kind of stuff you start reading when you're working on a sermon. I'm Googling walking, and next thing I know, I'm, I'm reading all these sites about how to walk like a model. Right? 
And it's interesting. They go over all kinds of things like posture and, 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 and facial expressions. And, and, and the, the, the counsel for learning how to walk like a model, they give you some, uh, some ideas, but they, all the sites came back to one thing. They said, if you really want to learn how to walk like a model, watch the professional models and how they walk. We need examples. And that's true of the Christian life, too. I know y'all are waiting for me to walk like a model. (laughs) Maybe later in the sermon. (laughs) We need models to learn how to walk as we should. And the other reason this this is important is because of what we see in verse 18. There are some folks that we should not follow, too. Notice there where Paul says, for many, this is the reason that he gives us verse 17, for, because, since, for many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul doesn't specify who the many are here. Maybe it's the selfish preachers that he mentions in chapter 1, verses 15 and 17. Maybe it includes the opponents that he names in chapter 1, verse 28. But in any case, what we do know is that they, they walk crooked. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. In other words, the pattern of their life is hostile to Jesus' purposes in the cross. The cross is meant to condemn sin and convert sinners. But these folks walk in such a way as to condemn Jesus and to celebrate sin. On the cross, God the Father punishes his son so that he can be merciful to us. But, but they reject the mercy of God in order to run off the, after the mess of sin. They walk not just ignorant of the cross, not unaware of the cross. They walk as enemies of the cross. Striking Paul, making mention of these people, says, listen, this is cause for repeated warning. You see it there in that phrase, of whom I have often told you. See, beloved, we need warnings against the wrong kinds of walk so that we don't imitate the wrong patterns of, of living. It's these warnings that help us avoid following the wrong example. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. But this walk of the enemies is also cause for tears. You see there Paul writes, and now tell you even with tears. Our warnings about such people should be mixed with sorrow for such people, not anger. We should weep because of the situation these folks are in. So if we're going to warn other Christians about their walk or someone else's walk, let us never warn without also weeping. Because when we warn without weeping, we will be tempted to self-righteousness and anger. And that's not the apostle's tone here. But listen, listen, let us also not weep without warning. Because if we weep and never give the warning, that's the kind of empathy that ruins people. It will ruin those we're weeping for, and it will ruin the church. We want to warn and weep because of the situation of the loss. But what what Paul wants us to see here is there are two ways to walk, and we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make between whether or not we're going to live like the apostles or live like the devil. So which model are you following? Which example are you tracing? Whose footsteps are we walking in? Most people don't think about imitating others as intentionally as Paul encourages in this text. Imitating requires careful observation and study. To mimic something, you must really lock in on it. That's why Paul says in the second half of verse 17, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Good imitation requires good observation. Sometimes Chrissy will be walking through the airport or something, and um, 
Afia and I walk faster than the rest of the family. The rest of the family is slow. You know, never get there waiting on them. But we, we walk through, and every once in a while, they'll say something like this, Afia, you, you walk just like your dad. We don't quite know what that means. I mean, I know it means she's cool because I'm cool, right? You know, there's a swagger to it, a little pimp. To it. I put a little dip in there once in a while, you know. And I know they're impressed with it because I walk through the house sometimes. And I hear him whispering, there you go again. Look at him. Look at him. <laughs> but Afia has grown up watching me walk. Some things you just pick up almost as if by osmosis. You've been observing without even knowing you're observing, right? But it, but it takes paying attention, locking in, keeping your eyes on, that you might pick up what is going on in the life of another, especially those things that are praiseworthy and Christ-worthy. So some people don't quite do this because they're not intentional enough, but, but some people struggle here because of a different reason. It's because they limit their example to themselves. That's the problem with a saying like, just do you. What if just doing you is doing some old jacked up stuff, some messed up stuff, and you've limited your assessment of yourself to yourself, and you've not welcomed any examples beyond yourself, how will you correct yourself when just doing you goes wrong? No, we need to be in this conspiracy. We need to join together in imitating the apostles. And we need some examples beyond ourselves precisely because we don't always know ourselves. And we're not always able to correct ourselves. We're not, we're not even always able to see what's wrong in our walk. But to walk with others who are walking with Jesus is precisely the kind of help we need from outside ourselves to be our better selves in Christ. So, a couple of questions. When's the last time you asked someone or I asked someone to show us how to do something in Christ? If we haven't asked that question in a while or we've never asked that question, chances are we're not as careful about following examples as the Bible is calling us to be. Or a second question. Is there anyone that you and I are intentionally following, even now, as an example of how to follow Jesus? We're not being intentional about that. If we can't identify someone who's like, yeah, I'm copying their life insofar as they are copying Jesus, then it might be that we're limiting our examples to our own thinking, to our own model. And that's just going to multiply blind spots for us. The main point of, of this, these first two verses, the main application from these first two verses is to find someone following Jesus well and copy them in that area. Imitate them. Follow them. Learn from them. And to be that for someone else as well. If we want to have the kind of joy that Paul has here, we want to learn to walk like an apostle. But secondly, we want to learn to think like a citizen of heaven. Here's the funny thing about walking. It starts in the brain. What happens in the brain determines when and how we walk. A little research that I read on walking, that was the, that was the difference between the, 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 the horses and the elephants and the babies. That, that there's a certain level of maturation that has to happen in the brain before we can walk. For elephants and, and donkeys, that happens pretty right away. That The brain sort of comes with that software already loaded, so to speak. But in the human development, that happens around age 9 months, 10 months, 11 months, or so on, somewhere around a year. So, so what happens in the brain determines how we walk. Whether or not in this text, 19 to 21, we are earthly-minded or heavenly-minded determines whether we walk like an apostle or walk like an enemy of the gospel. Notice what we see in verse 19 with the earthly-minded. Paul describes the enemies of the cross this way. Their end is their, is their destruction, their God is their belly, and, their and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Three D's in this verse. Notice their destination. It's destruction. Destruction refers to the final judgment of God when the wicked are sentenced to hell for their sin. 
Destruction is the same thing that Paul said would happen to the opponents mentioned in chapter 1, verse 28. It's the reason Paul has tears as he warns in verse 17. You cannot walk as an enemy of the cross and expect to walk into heaven. Oppose the cross and judgment is your future. Their destination is destruction, but notice their deity. Their deity, their their God. Paul says their God is their belly. The belly represents their appetites and their desires. They worship and serve their desires. They're controlled by the idol of what they want. My sinful pleasure. In reality, all people are religious according to this verse. All people worship. You may be here as a person who's not yet a Christian this morning, that does not mean you don't worship. You were made to worship something, even if that something becomes, sadly, your own desires and preferences and tastes. The truth is, we'll either worship Jesus Christ as Lord, or we'll worship ourselves or something else as Lord. But you see the difference in the destination, don't you? You see their destination, you see their deity, notice their delight. Finally, they glory in their shame. The word glory there means to to happily boast. And shame refers often in the Bible to, to being found guilty before God, condemned on the day of judgment. Oftentimes, hell is depicted as this overwhelming sense of shame in the presence of God. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, that it is his eager expectation and hope that he will not at all be ashamed on the day of Christ Jesus. So the the opposite of shame is this freedom and this confidence and this acceptance in the presence of God, which all who put their hope in Christ may expect. But those who serve their belly, they brag about things that will on that day bring them shame. Can't you hear that in the music of our culture? Can't you see that in the movies of our culture? In the Monday morning conversation when people are rehearsing their bragging rights from Friday and Saturday night? Glorying in shame. Glorying in the things that will condemn us before God. These people walk or live this way, notice, because their minds are set on earthly things. That means their minds are set on the things of this life, this world, of the, of the fallen, sinful world that we're in. It means that they are attracted to what is corrupted. And that's their passion. You remember that we've been in this series talking about our passions and passions being the, the things that, that are central to our, our soul and the things that drive us and animate us and give us purpose. Their passion is earthly things, which is why they fall. So if you think again about that article on how to walk like a model, one of the tips they give is where to look. And they instruct you not to look down. Because if you look down, you stumble or you you miss the end of the runway or your walk isn't what it's supposed to be. The the instruction is to look up and look out. These folks are not looking up and out toward Christ and glory. They're looking down toward earth, and they stumble, and they fall. This idea of being earthly minded is really quite serious in the Bible. Think of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, Jesus begins to teach his disciples that he's got to go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, beaten, killed. But on the third day, he's going to rise. And you may remember this scene, one of his apostles, Peter, he wasn't there yet, he pulls Jesus aside. I, I like it. He tried to have a little diplomacy, a little tact. He's going to pull the Lord to the side. And the Bible says he rebuked Jesus for teaching that. And you remember what Jesus said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. He says, you are a hindrance to me. But do you remember the the next line in his rebuke of Peter? He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
See, ultimately, a, a mind that's set on the things of man, a mind that's set on the things of earth, is a mind that's influenced by Satan. It's influenced by the prince of this world. Jesus says it's satanic in origin, and it has to be so because it's a mind not set on God and the things of God. That's the problem with these enemies of the cross. But notice the contrast, verse 20. Paul keeps going there, and he begins to talk about the Christians there in Philippi. He begins to talk about us. And so in verse 20, he writes this, but, now he's changing directions. There's a, there's a contrast, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, who will transform our lowly bodies, how? To be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So just as we saw the destination, the deity, and the delight of the enemies of the cross, we see here the same thing, the destination, the deity, and the delight of God's people. What's our destination? Paul says we are citizens of heaven. That's where our citizenship is. The Christian does not belong to this world. We, take, we pay taxes in it, but we ain't going to be here long. We, we passing through. We are sojourners and aliens and pilgrims making our way through this world to that heavenly city, to that new Jerusalem, to that new country where God is king and righteousness rules. Beloved, heaven is your home. That's what your passport is stamped with. And heaven is that state where God is and sin is not. Heaven is the final address of all those who trust Jesus as Lord. This is what the Bible anticipates and expects throughout its pages. Think of those famous passages, John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples before he's crucified and ascended? He says, do not let your heart be troubled, right? You that believe in me, believe in God also, right? Or believe in God, believe in me also. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And he promises that he's going to come. And bring us to that place. Or Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 where Jesus ascends into heaven and the disciples are standing there in awe of having seen the Lord raise up into glory. And an angel appears to them and says, why do you stand here looking up into heaven? Jesus is going to come from this same heaven in glory. Or you think of Paul's words in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 14 where Titus says, that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching them to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions while we live self sober, self-controlled, and upright lives in this present evil age, waiting for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The entire orientation of the Christian mind and heart is meant to be to this destination, to our citizenship in heaven. But notice the deity, who our God is. It's not our bellies. It's our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're new to Christianity, that word Savior, you, you may hear it in all kinds of conversations. There are all kinds of saviors. For example, a, a fireman who goes into a burning building and rescues a child from the second floor has saved that child, has rescued that child. Or you may see on the television news sometimes that some campers or hikers have gone somewhere and gotten trapped in a mountain or trapped out at sea, and the rescue workers go and they perform a, 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 an emergency rescue. Those people are, are saviors. But the Bible is about one savior in particular, the Son of God, the chosen one of God who comes into the world to rescue us not from a literal burning building or from a, a, a boating trip gone wrong. He comes into the world to rescue us from ourselves because of our sin and to rescue us from God because of his judgment. That Savior has, has come once already. That's what we celebrate in Christmas, the Son of God being incarnate, born into the world to, to give himself as a payment for our sins. But here now, Paul is not thinking about Jesus' first coming. He's looking to his second coming. 
that Christ is coming again, not to die again for sin, but he's coming again to gather his people into that place he has prepared for us. And we are waiting. And we are singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Come be with us. Come gather us. Come bring us into that place you have prepared for us in your Father's kingdom. And notice that we wait not only on our God, but notice our delight. It's in verse 21. Paul spells out what it looks like to look forward to Christ's coming. He's describing the source of our joy. He promises there that when Jesus comes, verse 21, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You didn't realize that we were all transformers, did you? Transform means to to change the, the form or the shape of something. Specifically, when Jesus comes again, he will change our lowly, that is our earthly fallen bodies, to take the likeness and the shape and the form and the nature of his glorious or heavenly body. The fancy theological word for that is glorification. Paul is looking forward to the day when we will be glorified together with our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes the second time. John tells us the same thing in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, that we don't know what we will be. We we can't even comprehend all that this glorification entails, but we know that when he comes, we'll see him. And once we see him, we will be transformed to be like him. Our bodies will become glorious. Now, don't think about losing weight and gaining muscle, rock hard abs and getting back down to a size two or being taller because you wish you were a baller. That that ain't what this is about. (laughs) That is earthly thinking. (laughs) This transformation is not a basic rehabilitation of your current model. It's not taking your body, your life, and brushing off the defects, little things that make you unhappy with yourself. No, this transformation is radical and and indescribable. It is qualitative change, not mere quantitative change. And to see that, we want to think about this from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So you can turn in your Bibles with me there to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 35. Paul gives an analogy here of a seed and a plant to try and help us understand this transformation. He says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? So he's thinking there about the, the resurrection and that glorified life. With what kind of body do they come? And this is a question you might have. Somebody's been dead for centuries, perhaps, or dead for a long time. The body has decomposed, and, and you're thinking, well, how does the resurrection work? What, what goes on with, with that old body? Verse 36, Paul says, you foolish person. I didn't mean to set you up that way, but Paul says, you foolish person. <laughs> what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be. So when we plant this body in the ground, that's not the body that's going to be, to be in glory. But what we sow is a bare kernel, a seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But by, God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed his own body. You see what he's saying there. If you want to plant wheat, you don't take a full-grown stalk of wheat and put it in the ground. You actually have to have the seed that goes into the ground that dies and then sprouts up in the plant called wheat. Now he's saying now if if he wants to glorify our bodies with Christ, then what he's going to do is plant this seed of of the human earthly body, the lowly body, but he's going to raise it from the ground in this whole new plant that looks like Jesus. 
The DNA is in the seed, but the plant is altogether different. Notice how Paul continues in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Jump down to verse 42. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That means it, it, it dies, it wastes away. What is raised is imperishable. It does not waste away. It does not die. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, an earthly body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, referring to Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. Then Paul writes this in verse 47. The first man was from the earth. That's us. That's Adam. A man of dust. The second man is from heaven. That's Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And Paul makes it plain. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Christian, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We are going to sow Adam in the ground and going to be raised in Christ, raised in glory, imperishable, powerful, glorious, full of honor. Paul has said, I'm looking for the coming of Jesus so I can be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. The delight of the earthly-minded person is the sin that brings him or her shame. But the delight of the heavenly-minded person is the transformation that brings him or her glory. And to grow that delight, we must meditate on that glory with Jesus when he comes. We must be heavenly-minded. Think about that state. Consider it with me. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death itself is thrown into the lake of fire with Satan and his demons. No longer will anything ever again die or fear death. Life will be indestructible. Life will be ours in all of its fullness. And what about sickness? Sickness is completely and forever healed. Not a single cough or runny nose or fever or rash. There'll be no strokes, no diabetes, no high blood pressure. There'll be no cancer or heart disease, or AIDS. There'll also be no mental illness, or depression, or suicidal thoughts. Our lives will be the perfect opposite of sickness. Our lives will be green with life, with health, with strength, with vigor, and wellness. Every muscle, every blood vessel, every organ, Every bone and joint completely healthy, functioning. But what about our hearts? The corruptions we feel in our hearts. Our souls will be perfectly cleansed. This means never having another lustful thought. Never having another sinful temptation. Never doing anything unclean. We only desire and think about the things that please God. We will only be capable of thinking about what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely and commendable, excellent and praiseworthy. And our flesh, our sin nature, will be absolutely broken. We will be under the total control of the Spirit of Christ. As I said, there'll be no temptation since God never tempts us with evil. We'll be only drawn to what pleases God, to what is holy and blameless 
and pure. Can you imagine a life where it is impossible to sin? St. Augustine wrote about what he called the fourfold state of man. Borrowing from the Latin here because, well, I feel like being fancy. So you could describe man with regard to his possibility of sinning in four stages through the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, before there was sin, man existed passe picare, where it was possible for him to picare, sin. And he existed passe non-picare, where it was possible for him not to sin. Man was in the garden with the ability to sin or not sin. But when Adam and Eve failed God and disobeyed God, sin entered the world and corrupted man so that man became non-passe, non-picare, that it was not possible for him not to sin. We call that radical depravity. In our soul, in our nature, there's this corruption that bends us towards sin, and we follow that nature towards its outcome. But then Jesus came, and Jesus came and brought the new birth, and, and those who have faith in Christ are saved from Adam's curse. And so the saved person now exists, passe non peccare, now with the possibility not to sin. We, we are not perfect, we do fail, but we now have this new power against which we can resist sin and live for God. But in that final state, when Christ comes again and he brings the glory that we have been waiting on, man then can, becomes non-passe picari. It becomes not possible for man to sin because we have now laid down the seed of this life and we have been clothed with the immortality and the perfect righteousness and the glory of Christ our Savior. So we now exist free from sin, free from the pull of sin, free from the corruption of sin. Sin becomes a distant memory and all we have it's life in Christ. Oh, we need to spend more time trying to imagine the glory of that transformation that awaits the Christian church. We're practicing how to walk now, following the apostolic example, and we are setting our minds on things above that our walk might be straight. But on that day when what we're walking toward comes... What glory that will be. What freedom that will be. What joy that will be. And beloved, what we need to do between now and then is this third point. We just need to stand together like the family of God. See it there in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I mean, once you contemplate the, the transformation that Christ is going to bring when he comes, all that's left to do is to encourage each other to stand in the victory that Christ has purchased for us. And notice, we do this without worry. All the language in this verse is meant to give us assurance and confidence. See how rich and tender it is. My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved, that's family love language. And that's what the church is, God's family, whom God loves. Since Paul writes these words under the inspiration and control of the Holy Spirit, he's not just talking about what's in his heart, he's talking about what's in God's heart toward the church. The Christian church is God's beloved, God's loved and longed for, God's joy and crown. God sings over his people with joy, Zephaniah tells us. So you're not meant to worry about this glory to come. You're not meant to tremble as if you're going to miss it. Uh, you will not miss it if Christ is your Lord. It is guaranteed to you and it is coming. And so what we need to do here is not work but wait. Not work but wait. Heaven isn't earned by work. It's given by God's grace through Christ. That's why we're merely to stand firm in the Lord. We're to hold true, as Paul says in verse 16, to what we have already attained in Christ. We're to continue believing and to continue trusting, and soon we will be beholding and triumphing. 
Our believing will become beholding. Our trusting will become triumph. Don't let anyone draw you away. Don't let anyone deceive you. Close your ears to Satan's lies. Do not listen to him. Resist him and he will have to flee you because Jesus is your victory. Stand firm, saints. The walking is nearly over. Set your mind fully on Christ. Heaven will soon be your reward. And his reward is worth it. Let us walk like the apostles. Let us think like citizens of heaven. And let us stand together as God's family while we wait for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, give us sanctified imaginations that we might dream long and dream holy about that world to come. Oh Lord, grant us grace to break free from the pool of earthly mindedness. This world can seem so real to us, so permanent, so urgent. But Lord, grant us by your spirit the ability to not only take care of the things you've given us to take care of in this life, but to do it, Lord, while fixing our hearts and minds on that life to come, on that kingdom to come, where Christ reigns in glory and where the saints, O oh Lord, are free from sin forever. Oh, we long for the day when our lives are non passe picare. where that life that really is life is finally and fully ours. We pray that you would give that life to someone this morning who doesn't yet know you. And we pray that you would strengthen that life in the hearts of those who trust in Christ. For your glory and our joy we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.